You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week August 6 to August 10. Uh, this week, it was such a packed week, we spoke to Kerry Gillum about her new book, Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer and the corruption of science. Fascinating and kind of disturbing stuff. Uh, and Mr. Bob Murphy from Western Bulldog came in to have a chat. He's got a book out. Uh, it's called Leather Solar Halfback Flankers Rhythm and Blues. And we had such a good chat with him. Uh, he's a very funny guy. And I got to tell him, uh, about how we share the same knee surgeon. It was exciting times. <laughs> uh, also, I, I went on a holiday to the – I was working. but I went to the Wit Sundays, um, but I, I got recruited into helping um, someone become a captain. Cool. And also we got to chat to um, the director of the MIF, the film playing at MIF Backtrack Boys. Dogs oh, yeah. and Naughty Boys. Oh. Yeah, it was a great chat. We also spoke to Juha Kakanen. He's here from Finland. And Finland's actually managed to come up with a solution to homelessness, which strangely involves giving people homes. And then we talked about curating film marathons and came up with a few suggestions. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are tuned to Breakfasters with the loving Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine all <laughs> loving each other. We love each other. <laughs> sure. We do. We really yes. do. Uh, Jeff, you don't have to be some kick what? me under the table. Yeah. I didn't really kick me. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, what if I could get you too I know. far away? <laughs> you actually do regularly kick me. <laughs> as as promised, on, on Monday, because um, last week I went to the Wit Sundays. And I said that I'd talk about it all week. Yes. Yes. As promised, here we go. Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh, As you remember, I went on a snorkelling tour. Um, We went to two different spots. Now, uh, the people that I went with were lovely and um, one of them had been to the comedy show the night before. Mm. So it was a bit, hey, we've got a comedian on board. Check it out. Um, In a good way or a bad way? There was one point where um, he tried to get me to do some stand-up. Oh. I was like, that's – but it was – he was like – such a common occurrence in your oh, life. Mate. But thankfully they were like – they were only joking. Like, we're not really going to, you know. Yeah. There was, I was never, un, you know, under any assumption that they were actually going to make me do it. It's just a funny little line that they had. Um, anyway, there was one point where the, one of the guys on the boat was in training to become a skipper. Oh. Become a captain. Um, so there's certain things that he had to get ticked off to make that happen. So at one stage, um, the actual skipper on the boat, he said, you know, Braden's in, in training, so he might take over the wheel a couple of times, but, you know, he knows what he's doing, I'll be here, whatever. Uh, and at one point he was, um, Braden was at the wheel and that's when Keith, the other captain, the real captain, came over yes. and sat with him. He was having a bit of a chat, and he goes, "Oh, so you, you know." And he was he was the one that wasn't at the comedy, Braden had been oh, at the comedy. Okay. So Keith was having a chat. He goes, "Oh, so you do a bit of comedy and stuff." I'm like, "Yeah." And he goes, uh, "How how good is your acting skills? How good are you at acting?" Oh. And I went, um, "I made." Don't you hate those questions? Because you know that. You're committing to something mm. with with your answer, so you've got to work out what you're committing to with your answer. Yeah, so I went, I'm okay. What what for? You know, and in my mind, I'm you know, like I always do, constantly say yes. Open yourself to up to sure. new experiences. This could be fun, right? And I said, I'm all right. And he goes, Do you reckon you could pretend to drown a little bit? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and just pretend that you're a bit short of breath and, like, you've taken too much water and um, I just need to mark him off with his first aid. Oh. So mark him to, off with a fake drowning. Yeah, so just and just say that you're a bit short of breath, you swallow too much water and then we'll get you on the oxygen tank. Like, we'll get him to put you on the oxygen tank. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could... Yeah, I could do that. Um, so he's like, just, you know, when we get to the next spot, have a bit of a swim around and then after a while just kind of wave your hand and stuff and and see how you go. I'm like, okay, I can do that. He goes, shakes my hand, walks off. And then so we get to the next place. The next place was just full of fish, right? This is where you get in and then there's fish there and they throw fish pellets out so the fish all are just swimming around you're like oh, really cool. it's incredible right so we're doing that um 
and we're swimming around for a bit, kind of staying really close to the boat, um, just, you know, swimming around. And then after I'd been in there for a bit, I thought, all right, this is, this is my time to shine. Right, so I'd start, I'm like, how do I, I don't want to actually pretend to drown. So you just had to surprise, it was a surprise fake drowning. Yeah, yeah, Braden didn't know. He was, oh. he was being tested on it, you know. I had yeah, to, yeah, you yeah. know. So, oh, Braden. Yeah, so, and Keith was at the side of the boat and I started, you know, I'm like, how do I do, I started coughing a bit. I'm like, oh, and then just going, oh, and then Keith spotted me and he goes, excuse me, excuse me, miss, are you all right? Are you all right? And I went, oh, <coughs> oh, I might need to come in. I think I'm, I think I need to come in. And then he goes, right, swim over here. And I came over and he put his hand and he pulled me into the boat. He goes, yeah, just grab it here. And I got pulled in. He goes, just sit here for a minute. You're all right. I'm like, yeah, I'm just... <coughs> he goes, oh, did you swallow a lot of water? I'm like, yeah, I think I'll try to dive down and I I got it in my snorkel. And <coughs> and then, you know, <laughs> had the... They got me this my asthma so puffer. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I go, yeah, it might be a bit of asthma. Like, yeah, just have a, you know, have some of this and... And then Keith turns to Brady and goes, I think she might need the oxygen, mate. And he goes, oh, yeah. So he got out the oxygen tank and stuff. And he goes, and they got me some water. And I'm like, how you feel? I'm like, oh, I'm, all, I'm okay. I think, <coughs> and then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then and they go, hey, you know, just come and sit at the back of the boat. And I... He goes and they helped me down to the back and I'd sat down and they said, Oh, he just have you had one of these before? And I was like, No, and they just you just breathe normally. So I put the oxygen tank on me and then so everyone else is in the water swimming about. There was one woman there that like Keith kept on winking at me and giving me the thumbs oh. up, going, You're doing a great job when Braden had his back turned. And then but there was one one other woman that was like she came up, she goes, Are you all right? And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm trying to say to her, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just doing it. I'm acting. Yeah. yeah. But then it's like she doesn't know why I'm acting. No. So for me to go, you no, just, I'm just you're playing a prank. You're just like an attention seeker. <laughs> yeah. Just like no, no, I'm just uh, pretending did, to, you know, to get. Oh, did no. Braden? Did, did Braden have any idea you're acting? No, not, none at all. None at all. Um, oh, my God. So, and also I couldn't explain to this. I just kind of went, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'll be fine kind of thing. I just kind of went with it. And then um, and then after a while, um, Keith just turned to Braden and he's like, how are you feeling? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm feeling much better. He goes, you're not feeling nauseous? And I'm like, oh, I was before, but I'm I'm okay now. And and stuff, and then Keith goes, "She's a pretty good actor, isn't she, mate?" And Braden went, "What?" And I went, "Yeah, I'm fine." <laughs> was, but how did Braden feel about it? Was he okay with the fact that it was well set up? Yeah, oh, I mean, he would felt you know because he got punked. Yeah, but, but did he get it all? Did he get it all right? Had he done everything right? I think was so. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. I said, I was just trying to. I'm trying to help you see you become a. So you become a captain. A captain. And was that yeah. was that his final test? Was he a captain after that? I don't think so. I think he had a. I think he's got a few more things to be ticked off. Oh, that's a shame. I was no, no, it would have been great. Yeah. Uh, now pronounce you yeah. captain. captain. Oh, that would have yeah. been awesome. Do you reckon then he could just call himself captain everywhere he goes like you know when you get you know when you go buy an airline ticket you can put your title and stuff you reckon he can call himself captain everywhere maybe you can oh i don't captain? know like the way you can call yourself doctor you're yeah. a doctor aren't you yeah, yeah. But, but imagine being able to just say you know when they ask you and when you're feeling informed they ask you your captain, titles, Sarah captain. Smith. is that an official title captain mm, or skipper oh. i don't know maybe captain's skipper. an awesome title <laughs> well, skipper's got better isn't it yeah i like skipper yeah hello skipper skipper jez <laughs> This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. The National Homelessness Conference has just taken place in Melbourne. One of the main speakers was Juha Karkinen, the CEO of the Y Foundation in Finland. He's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. If you walk through the streets of Melbourne, you'll find rough sleepers on almost every city corner. Would that be the same if you were walking through a city in Finland? No, that would be extremely rare. There are no rough sleepers sleeping on the streets. As a phenomenon, we don't have it anymore. For, for the last 
10 years, we have been concentrating on helping the most vulnerable group of homeless people by providing them permanent housing and support if that's needed. Okay, because that's extraordinary. Here in Melbourne, it feels like homelessness has become more and more visible over the past um, few years. Was there a homelessness problem in Finland? Was it ever bad in the past? It has been bad, especially in the 1980s. We had around 20,000 homeless people in Finland. But we have a very broad definition of homelessness. So most of our homeless people are so-called hidden homelessness, sofa surfing, etc. People temporary with friends and relatives. But what's quite an important thing that we have been ending the temporary accommodation mostly, shelters and hostels in Helsinki, which is the main, main city, also in terms of homeless, homelessness. These shelters and hostels have been renovated and converted in, into something completely different. The last big shelter we had was by Salvation Army, 250 bed places. Now they have 81 independent apartments. Everybody has a rental contract of their own, and there are on-site personnel in the, in the building. So if they need support, that's provided. So basically, rather than putting people in a shelter, they get yeah. an apartment. Yeah. Um, and do they pay rent? And Yes, of course. That's We, we think that... When a homeless person gets an apartment, it, he has the same rights and obligations as everybody else. So mm-hmm. you're supposed to pay your rent. And if you don't have enough in- income, like everybody else, you can get general housing benefit and supplementary social welfare benefit to cope with the so payment of the rent. Are there other? How good are your social services then in Finland as well? Because I suppose um, you'd need good support in areas like mental health or public, mm-hmm. you know, whatever my public hospitals or whatever it might be, is that something that kind of works in conjunction with the housing? Yes. I think that we have, in social and healthcare, we have pretty good basic services. So people homeless or people living in their normal homes, they can, there's a lot of services available for them. Yeah. Because a lot of people here, I guess, um, particularly commentators or politicians would say, well, we can't just give homeless people houses because if we do, they might have a drug problem, they might have a mental illness, they'll just wreck it. That's not a solution. How would you answer that? That's, uh, that's false news, you could say. Yeah. Because I think that what we have realised is that, which, which also has happened in many other countries, that when you can uh, get an apa- apartment a safe place to stay that's a foundation for your living so if you have problems then you can solve them with the help of professionals but if you are living on the streets so that's quite impossible it has happened it it rarely happens that you can solve your problems when you are on the streets Mm. Mm. so it's it's you have to think housing as a basic social right not as as a place for financial speculation and that's the in a way the big political picture with, with housing. Was there much criticism of this scheme in Finland when it when it happened? Because I can imagine if we tried to do that here there'd be so much pushback about costs and much of the kind of criticism that Jeff just mentioned as well. Well of course there were some criticism but quite soon people realised that it's it's effective yeah. and it also produces cost savings. That's not the main issue to, to produce cost savings. But it also happens. So when you give a home for a homeless person, even with support, we have calculated that the cost savings for the society are around 15,000 euros, euros per one person per mm-hmm. one year. And if they get back to employment, which is very crucial because that's the way how, do you, how you integrate, at least in Finland, to the society when you get employment. Mm. So cost savings, of course, because they become taxpayers, is, is even higher. Yeah. So, okay, you've been in Australia, you've been talking to people at this housing conference. If you were looking at the situation here in Melbourne where we have homeless people visible on the streets, what would be the first steps that you'd be saying to the government it should do to implement something like the Finnish model? There's, there are two, two things. I think this housing first model where you give first housing and then you provide support if that's needed. That's working. It has been scientifically proved in several countries but Finland has been one of the only ones that have 
put it on a national level as a national strategy. The other one is the supply of affordable social housing. And I was amazed to hear that in Australia it's around 4% of the total housing stock. And that's absolutely nothing. It's impossible to solve homelessness with a social housing stock that's so small. Mm. In Finland we have around 13%. Mm. And especially in the new housing areas we have there's an agreement that every time you build 20% social housing, affordable social housing. And that's crucial. You you need you can't have this housing first model without having housing first. Mm. That's mm. that's in a way the And case. does this have ramifications more broadly? Because in Australia we have a problem with homelessness, but we also have a general problem with housing. Even if you're not homeless, most people are mm. paying huge amounts of money on rent or on mortgage. I mean, is the policy that you're advocating, would it have a broader effect on the housing crisis? Uh, it it can have and it must have. So you have to think about the whole picture. Visible homelessness, like rough sleeping, is only part of the picture. The The main thing is to provide affordable social housing and make that stock big enough. We have quite nice examples also in Finland because we are at the rock radio station. <laughs> it rarely happens for somebody at my age to be, be, become invited to a rock radio station. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you play a very good music. Thank you. So, but it reminds me, uh, uh, I have to tell a story. There was a big shelter in, in Helsinki in, that was opened in the 60s. And when when the city got new facilities, they closed it, and it was occupied by young people who made it a young culture centre. And there was a rock radio station there. And when it was demolished this building, these musicians sold the rock radio station, and they made a foundation to help other musicians. Some years ago, they approached us in my foundation that they wanted to build an affordable social housing for rock musicians, because there are a lot of musicians with low incomes. Not everybody is a star like your court in Barnet. Yeah. So, <laughs> so together we made this building. It's in a very central location in Helsinki. We have 74 flats there. 35 are reserved for rock people, rock musicians and oh, wow. people working in, in the industry. And there are some training facilities also in the building. So I'm very lucky because now we have a house band of our own if we, if we need it. Oh, that's <laughs> extraordinary. What a great yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah, that's the idea for you. Sell the station and start building, <laughs> start building affordable housing. <laughs> but before we let you go, you've been talking to people while you've been here. For a lot of us here in, in Australia, it often seems like there's this total paralysis in terms of new ideas that it seems like the government is never going to do anything about any problem whatsoever, do you feel like there's a receptiveness to your ideas? Are people enthusiastic when you tell them these things? Certainly, and I, and I must say that I have met a lot of professionals who do an amazing job, and there are very good things in Australia in, in terms of how, how to deal with homelessness, mm. like prevention, something we can learn also from, from you. But the big picture is that these people are doing a lot of work, but the final call to end homelessness, it doesn't realise unless the government act and do something with the social housing. That's, mm. that's my opinion. Because you can take a good reference from other countries, for example in Ireland, where they sold public land to private developers and in a way wished that they would build also affordable housing. Well, they have not built because they are wait waiting that the land price goes up. So in Ireland, it's about the same population as in Finland, and they have almost 10,000 people in temporary accommodation at the moment. Mm. If, you, if I think about the similar figures in Finland, it's around 1,000 maybe, mm. the Jeez. maximum. Fascinating. We've been talking to Juha Kakanen, the CEO of the Y Foundation from Finland. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us. Thank you. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Tune to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Deraldine and Sarah. Whitewash the story of a weed killer 
Cancer and the Corruption of Science is a new book out through Island Press. It's just won the Rachel Carson's Book Award. Its author is the journalist Kerry Gillum, who's in town for the Bendigo Writers' Festival this weekend, but she's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is a story that centres on the multinational Monsanto and its flagship product, Roundup. What is Roundup? Why has it become so internationally significant? <laughs> well, Roundup uh, is the world's most widely used agrochemical. It's a weed killer. Uh, it's the active ingredient is a chemical called glyphosate that uh, Monsanto patented and brought into the world in 1974. And uh, it's been, you know, wildly successful. Obviously, Monsanto pushed it to great prominence uh, in the agricultural world. It's also used, you know, by cities and, and townships on children's playgrounds and in parks uh, and school grounds. Homeowners use it often on their lawns. It's used in golf courses. Uh, and of course, farmers around the world uh, spray this herbicide in their fields on a regular basis, and many crops are sprayed directly over the top of it. Uh, this leaves this weed killer in our food. It's found commonly in our water, in our soil, in our air. It comes down as rainwater, and it's, it's found in our own bodies. Roundup was supposed to be so safe that you could drink it. At one point in the book, you quote a Monsanto uh, press release explaining to people that Roundup is not actually a beverage and they shouldn't <laughs> drink it. But when did people first start suggesting that it wasn't as safe as it was being made out? Well, over the years, as Monsanto pushed this uh, this weed killer um to, to greater and greater use, encouraging farmers to use it over genetically engineered crops that were designed to tolerate uh, the spraying of Roundup. Uh, more and more researchers realized how significant this this weed killer was going to be in our lives. And so they've started tracking it. We now have, you know, decades of research looking at human health impacts as well as impacts on the environment, on our soil and on our, on our pollinators uh, and on our water quality. Um, and what they've been finding, you know, are, are very worrisome uh, results uh, on, on a range of different aspects. Sorry, just getting some strange um, feedback. There. Can you just explain a little bit, when people hear about genetically modified crops, they might not be aware of how much that has to do with pesticides. Can you explain about how Roundup Ready crops work and how significant that has become for agriculture? Right. So the, the main type of GMO or genetically engineered crop out there in the world is not something designed to be more nutritious or to grow better with less water or to benefit a consumer. The main type of GMO crop in the world is designed to encourage the use of herbicides, encourage the use of glyphosate and Roundup products uh, and other weed killers. Monsanto brought these GMO crops into the world in the 1990s because their patent on glyphosate was about to expire and they wanted a way to capture and control that market into the future. And that is what they've done. And we saw after the introduction of GMO crops, we saw the global use of glyphosate grow from about 123 million pounds a year to now close to 2 billion Oof. pounds a year. And as I said, it's it's ubiquitous. It's found in our food, our water, our soil, and our own bodies. At what point in time did we start questioning whether this was good for us or bad for us? You know, I mean, the studies very, very early on, there were studies uh, in the 80s that the, uh, that the U.S. Uh, Environmental Protection Agency looked at that indicated that this could be a carcinogen. Uh, rare kidney tumors showed up in mice that were, were exposed to this chemical. Uh, and over the years, the, the research has simply built uh, to such an extent that in 2015, top cancer scientists who are part of the World Health Organization determined that the bulk of the research showed this to be a probable human carcinogen. The story you tell, though, isn't just about a once lauded product being found to have flaws or being discredited. It's also about how a huge company acts to protect its property. So tell us a little bit about how Monsanto has responded to the new research about um, the effects of Roundup. Yeah, I mean, this is the deception, the corruption of science part of the book. And, and sadly, you know, this is a very big part of of you know, what is happening not only with the agrochemical industry, but, you know, pharmaceutical and oil and gas, very big 
powerful companies have a have a history of deceiving consumers and regulators and lawmakers and and their own customers and that's what we've seen with Monsanto and Roundup the documentation that I've obtained and others have obtained from regulators and from inside Monsanto's own you know corporate headquarters we have copies of their own emails and communications uh, shows a very deliberate effort to deceive that goes back decades um, to manipulate the scientific literature, uh, to post ghost-written articles and magazines and on websites, and really just create a whole um, network of, of deceptive tactics. So who trumps who legally then? Because if you've got the World Health Organization scientists saying there is problems with this, but the scientists within Monsanto argue otherwise, who wins here? <laughs> Well, so far, I guess you would say that Monsanto's yeah. been winning. I mean, they they've you know have billions of dollars in profits uh, that they have generated over the years from the sale of this chemical and the related crops, and they they have managed to convince regulators around the world to discount or disregard the science that the World Health Organization cancer scientists looked at. Uh, the regulatory agencies primarily look at the industry science. These are usually secretive, non-published studies mm. that Monsanto and other companies give to the regulators to say, look, this is this is how safe our product is. Uh, in, in your title, you talk about the corruption of science and some of the material you detail in the book is shocking indeed. But when I was reading it, I was struck by the parallel with debates about climate change or before that over tobacco science. Is this a broader issue with the way science and industry become entwined in, in so that all of these in all of these fields, you have multinationals with huge amounts of power and huge amounts of money at stake so that science doesn't seem to be able to function properly. And, and that's exactly the point here. This is much larger. Climate science is a really good example of that. Uh, you've seen a, a you know full frontal assault <laughs> on legitimate science uh, by those seeking to protect the status quo and st- seeking to um, prevent restrictions you know that could could help mitigate against climate change. And that's what we're seeing with with the pesticide and agrochemical industry. World Health Organizations um, and scientists and medical professionals around the world know and say that pesticides contribute to human cancers and other ailments and diseases, neurodevelopmental problems in children, reproductive problems with with people, fertility issues, uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. And yet the companies that are selling these pesticides are working so hard to protect their profits uh, and much to the detriment of public health. So Monsanto argue effectively, though, that we can't create enough food in the world without pesticides like this. So what do you say to that? What is the alternative if we don't have these pesticides? So that's something that they've been saying, you know, for a really long time, and the data just doesn't support that. Um, we we don't have people lacking food and starving, you know, in poor countries because they don't have enough pesticides or because yes. they don't have, you know, that special GMO seed, uh, the United Nations and other experts, you know, have documented this is, this is a function of, you know, political instability, economic instability, lack of transportation, oftentimes lack of roads and bridges and refrigeration and storage. Those are the problems, infrastructure, deep rooted problems that these poor nations have um, in terms of food safety and security. We have more than enough uh, grain. <laughs> we have over a billion bushels of corn in the United States every year that we have in storage that we have nothing to do with. Yeah. Just before we let you go, for people who are listening, if they, I don't know, work on a council that uses you know, these products to do its lawns or maybe they work in agriculture, what should our attitude now be to Roundup? I mean, are you advocating that people don't use it at all? I'm not advocating that people don't use it or that people ban it. What I'm advocating for is just truth and transparency and that people understand the risks that have been hidden for so long. Because obviously there have been rewards associated with this chemical, made farming easier for, you know, for many years. It's not not as effective anymore. Um, but people are still using it, but they need to know about the risks so they can protect themselves, so they can use it in a more restrained, precautionary way, perhaps, mm. protect their children, protect themselves. The book is Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer and the corruption of science. It's out through Island Press. You can catch more of a discussion of it at the Bendigo Writers Festival. But we've been talking to the author, Kerry Gillum. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR. 
to breakfast us here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Leather Soul, a halfback flanker's rhythm and blues. It's a new book out via Nero. Its author is Bulldogs legend Bob Murphy. He's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Morning, guys. How are you? How are you doing? Good. Good. Well. Good. In your acknowledgements, you say you wanted to create a different kind of footy book. This is a memoir, but it's not just a memoir. How would you describe it or what did you have in mind when you were putting it together? Um, oh, it's two love stories. One of a one a kid with a game, and you know, girl, the, the high school crush. Only the game breaks my heart in the end. That's kind of the, the, two, <laughs> the, the two sort of stories. Oh, I just, I mean, I, the, I write in there that the book was deliberately not, you know, there was never going to be titled yeah, Murphy in big because I wasn't <laughs> that player. I didn't have that career, and I, I just kind of thought there was a gap in this sort of genre of book that. We we often hear you know, footballers of the the champions, this the the standout superstar that you know wins the day and carries the flag and all that. And so I when I wasn't that player, but I just thought oh, it'd be interesting to the view from the middle of the pack sort of thing. Uh, in this book, you discuss how in your first season you were still completing year twelve, and you write about how your day starts at six a.m. with weight training, then you do a full day of school, and then another five hours of training after school. Yeah, that sounds well intense. Might be one word for it. How did you cope with that kind of pressure? Did you know others at the time who just couldn't deal with it? Because it sounds like awful. I mean, I think what I was like at that age, and that just sounds. Horrific. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was. It, it, it was a bit of a shock of just being a kid and then sort of being thrust into a professional environment. And I think I think what shocks a lot of young players is that it, the the reality of the footballers' lot is it's not it's not very glamorous. It's actually quite unrelenting and routine and and hard. It's just physically hard and emotionally taxing. Um, so it, it was a. It was. It was. A difficult, difficult adjustment, but I did hang on to that. I mean, I, I just loved it so much that it was, it was still exciting. As, as hard as some of those days were, that it was still exciting. I was, I still felt like the little kid, the, you know, the, the school kid with the packet of footy cards in his pocket, and but they were sort of now, you know, I shared a locker room with them, so I always had that buzz. You, the book kind of flips between your early days and your first few seasons at the Dogs, and then your last couple of seasons and the, the difference is so striking like in the early days you're talking about the kind of sprays you're getting from Terry Wallace working <laughs> under you know Ronnie there's a really intense one in there which is great to read um and also this is there's a there's a bit where you talk about a 2004 pre-season with the special operations group where you guys just get <laughs> it's insane you get taken down to St Gilda Beach and like abused tortured, tortured, tortured yeah, yeah. publicly tortured yeah um it, it, but then you kind of look at the new players and how that's changed a lot and uh, which era do you think was is or was harder to play in for you? Because I know, like, new, you know, young players now kind of have a whole... They have probably more media pressure and they have social media and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely felt it was harder for me at the start. Now, whether that's just because I was younger, but I, I the, the culture of footy then was far... It was more... I mean, it's still quite conservative. Yeah. Um, but even more back, you know, 20, 15 years ago, it was so conservative and a lot of rules and quite macho. And, and I sort of, I had some issues with that and sort of struggled a little bit with that. So by the, the, the culture changed quite a lot. So by the time I got to the end, I, I, I was, I loved it more towards the end than I probably did at the start because I found the, the quite restrictive and... And a bit, uh, I felt a bit cooped up there for a little while. Yeah. There's also, you kind of talk about struggling to find your identity as Bob, not the footballer, a little mm. bit in it. And I find it really interesting that you're described as quirky in the early days because <laughs> if anything, you seem so relatable to us. You, you, yeah. You're like the so, guy at the Northgate Social Club. So we're preaching you know? to the choir here. Yeah. Yeah. This is so, so my wife, Justine, who'll be listening, she was, um, we went to school, she was quite alternative. But and she would still to this day tears her hair out, you know, because in football circles, you know, it's like, oh, he's a he's a bit out there. He's yeah. a, and she's just like slamming the desk going, you're not out there. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're actually, like in, in our world and, the, you, know, the, yeah. and you know, we live down the road from the Northgate Social Club. We yeah. are not out there. We, if anything, I might be quite conservative <laughs> in, in that realm. So, well, yeah, but I mean, that, that kind of paints a picture of how how sort of how how, how conservative footy is. Yeah, well, how, but how do you overcome that? Like, because you kind of have these demands, and you do touch on this. You have these demands to be a club man and to play for the team, and it's team first. But you also want to 
develop yourself as an individual how yeah. how did you overcome that it's a it, it was a balance it was a it was a balance of basically train train hard and play well and then you get a little bit more leeway yeah. but it was just it was just about sort of finding a little bit of space but also I was as much as you know you want to you want to express yourself and you know, <laughs> have some sort of creative outlet whether it's writing or the clothes you whatever whatever it was but I I never wanted to damage that team spirit and that that's that, that's a very precious thing i i wasn't sort of keen on upsetting the apple cart i wanted to i wanted to you know compromise and be a part of that 44 person band if you like whilst also going now yeah, there's times when i don't you know i just mm. i just want to i just want to be me man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just interesting you're talking about writing because you say in the book that a good coach has to articulate a story and that's fundamental for creating a team identity can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that well, that, that's my that's my take on it. Other people will say that's not that not that necessary. That you know you're professional footballers and you, this is the this is the task, and you can be unemotional about. There's lots of people in the football who are you know openly un, unemotional about the game. This is just a a process of thing. But that always left me a bit cold. I always liked the storytelling, and I love the symbolism of of football. I love the tribalism of the game in this in this country in this city in particular like the things like the jumper the number you wear the lock you share with the the elders of the football club the stories part i love i love all that stuff and i think they're important things in in building a special team spirit um and they you know they, for me they're as, as important as the marks kicks and handballs speaking of um in, important things you also talk about the community cup in this yes. book yeah. Um, i don't know if you did this or whether it was the publishers but you you wrote pbs Megahertz. Oh. It's all triple R, triple R. It's all of us. Oh. Wow. I don't want to, you know, have a go at you. Well, but. well, the only way we can sort that out is to sell enough books to reprint. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got to well sort done. that out. Yes. But, but, but let's let's talk about that because there was a, a few years ago where you um, kind of co-coached with. Um, oh, it's Paul Kelly. Yes. Paul Kelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sure. little song and dance. Yeah, from, uh, born in Adelaide. You might have heard of him. Co- might have heard of him. He's had a couple of tracks. Up, and, up and comer. Uh, yeah, tell us, tell us about that. Uh, well, I, I mean, he was like all of us. He's, you know, his songs and that sort of permeate through our lives, don't they? And mm. I'd gotten to know him kind of, just sort of briefly, and then he asked me to be the assistant coach for the for the rock dogs and it's just like without any hesitation yes you know I mean, assistant coach for the community cup is a bit of a token sort of yeah. title <laughs> <laughs> what even are you the, saying even, <laughs> even coach is somewhat token uh so so I, yeah I, I did that for a couple of years and it was just a, it was a great thrill but the the highlight of it i mean the game itself i mean you, you guys as you guys know mm. I, and i was on the inside for a couple of years in the rooms i could never quite work out whether it was the most important game of all time, like it was all the chips on the table, or it was a total piss take, and it took me a couple of years to work out that it's actually both. It is a hundred percent both, and it's but it's it's schizophrenic and then it swings wildly. So it's not <laughs> yeah, both. Of, it's, not, it's not both of those things at the same <laughs> yeah. time. It's yeah. it swings wildly between. Oh, everyone's you know, people are having you know uh, you know a, a cigarette at three quarter time <laughs> and a beer, but then it's people crying when they're getting their jumper presented to them, and it is both of that. And that it took me a little while to get. That side of it, and it, it's just, it is strange. I just, I just think it captures the spirit of this city as well as anything. Yeah, yeah it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I played my, fir- I played my first and only game last year. How did you find it? Bad knees, actually. Bad knees. Yeah, just Com- like you, comrade. That's the <laughs> yeah, mate. <laughs> you know, we actually have the same knee surgeon. Do we, David Young? Yeah, David Young. Talking of eccentrics. Done, yeah, done both my knees. <laughs> Just wanted to get that in there. I say it all the time, you know. Shout out to David Jones. She yeah. does say it all the time. I do. So it's that Bob Murphy. I'm like, yeah, we've got the same knee surgeon. Yeah. Oh, I'm really stretching. Um, I can't. Like, I would really want to talk to you about the most emotional chapter in this book, which is um, you discussing the 2016 grand final, which you missed out on. You had yeah. these really heart-wrenching lines in there, which I kind of wasn't expecting. Um, at one point you say, you, you say, I'm dying inside. Everyone has their limits and I feel like I'm not far away from a breakdown of some kind. And you describe um, the, the push and the pull of that day, the, the joy and the absolute heartbreak of not being able to be out there. And uh, you even describe at points kind of hiding in the toilets mm. and not, you know, not knowing what to do with yourself. Yeah. It, 
How do you feel now, like a couple of years removed from that moment and that grand final? How do you how do you view it and how do you feel about it? Uh, the, oh, the overwhelming it, it gets it gets better. It does get better. It does yeah. get better with time. <laughs> with the odd, there's the odd twinge of things where sometimes something unexpected, someone might say something, or you just or see an image of the day, and it just I don't know. They're just a little twinge of you know. Think you haven't completely dealt with it, but much better than at the, <laughs> at the actual time. At the actual time. When I was a wreck, I was you know you know emotionally kind of broken into a few pieces. Do you think you've emotionally recovered from that? Um, recovering. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What, did, what did the other? How did the other players re- react? Like, did, were they? Did they know how to support you through that? Um, they kind of had too much. They had bigger fish to fry, and yeah. that was that was the that was the deal, and that mm. was the deal I made of I, which is why it was so difficult away from them. So mm. in private, where you you know you just kind of crumble because you had to be you know there was a role to play, and I and I I was desperate not to be an emotional anchor for those guys who. Had so they they had the most important job of their professional life to yeah. do and, and the significance of that for the club and all that. So I was well aware of that. So I and I knew that they'd be they might have an eyeball on me. And I thought if I'm you know if they see the little the bottom lip go, yeah, that I would never forgive myself if that cost the team or the club. Mm. So I was I had to I had to you know you know stiff up stiff up a, yeah yeah. C- c- yeah suppress it all like like. Any good middle-aged Australian man, yeah. suppress that <laughs> stuff, down. Yes. Wait it down, down. Yeah. wash it down with a few bottles of wine, yeah. and then, and then, and then oh, assess the, the and then assess the long-term damage. Well, actually, bring you something I wanted to ask you. There's a, another great quote in the book where you say, "Someone asked me recently what life was like having just retired from the AFL, and I told them it was a bit like leaving the Big Brother house after 18 years." What kind of struck me about that? It's quite an ambivalent. Um, <laughs> metaphor, isn't it? Like, would you want Jeff. to go back into the house if that were possible, or were you sort of nah. happy to move nah, on nah, to the nah. next phase of your life? No, so you- I was ready. I was, I was ready. I, I, I'm always intrigued by players, even players who are like in their forties. Oh, I just miss the locker room. I, I miss the locker room banter and the camaraderie. And I, I enjoyed my time. I loved it. I, I revelled in being part of the pack and in the locker room. And all. <laughs> There was moments last year where I'm in the locker room. I only understood maybe half the jokes. <laughs> like I didn't, you know. When I, and the the look on the players' faces on my team when I, you know, in the middle of winter and I put my singlet on and tucked it into my jeans was just like <laughs> outrage. <laughs> I thought I, my life has just moved on. I'm too old for this. I don't. I've got other stuff to do. There's, a, there's an age where it becomes undignified to wear shorts in winter every week. That, and I, <laughs> I, I hit that point. I was I was ready. I, I wanted a bit more independent. I loved being a part of the team and the pack and all that, but I, I was ready for some independence. I'm going solo. <laughs> um, you grew up a Tiger supporter. Same. Yeah, look at you look at we, this, Bob. We Can, could be. Are you? I know. I've got a feeling we pro- if we traced it back, we're probably we're like third probably, cousins or something. We're probably Irish Catholic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're, like, we're like mice. <laughs> Um, and you, I saw your interview you did with Richo on your on your show for Fox Footy Bob recently, and it's so sweet because it, you kind of say, "Oh, it's really strange to grow up with a poster on your wall of someone, then and then become their friend mm. later in life." It's the best. I'm kind of jealous. I want to be Richo's friend. Yeah, um, you could be. Could he's, you hook me up? Such a, yeah, we can sort that yeah, out. Yeah, I could. But you, could you like? Is there still that fan boy inside of you? Yeah. And now that you've left football, can you? Can you kind of be that fanboy again and enjoy footy for what it is? It's kind of falling back in love, a different kind of relationship with the game now. Yeah. Now watching, I'm kind of getting used to watching again and trusting the eye and just sort of focusing on the things, I, you know, you love about the game because there's so much about the game that leaves us all cold, I think. Yeah. That, but you just got to find the stuff you love. But I never got... That's probably the thing... I'm as proud of that as anything, that the 10-year-old kid who was, a, who was just in awe of... The, you know the footballs and the you know the mystique of the game. Even when I be, was thirty five and and sick of the locker room, I was still. I never got blasé about the game or the great players or the great moments or the smells or the sound. I, I still had yeah. time, even when it was happening, the chaos of the game. I still had little moments of, that's great. And that ten year old, you know, that little ten year old was still had the buzz. Did you feel a little bit excited when Tigers won the grand final last year? <laughs> <laughs> 
is there a little bit of yellow and black in there at all? Look, I think some people had a hard time with me celebrating the Bulldogs premiership. So I think I, <laughs> that would have been too big a carrot for some of those for some of those critics to start waving the old Tigers flag. <laughs> Uh, the book is Leather Soul, a halfback flankers, rhythm and blues. It's out now via Nero Books. We've been talking to its author, Bob Murphy. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thanks for having me, Bob, guys. I've got a special song for you. What's your favourite album of all time? Exile on Main Street. Why is that your favourite record? Um, I just think the Stones are the greatest rock and roll band and that kind of is just that gritty blue. It's just the stuff I like. And I heard it in the Napier Hotel in the year 2001. It kind of changed my life. took a left turn as soon as I sort of... I've just delved into that kind of music from then on. That is a very good answer. I'm going to play Soul Survivor for you, Philip. Oh, yes. (laughs) This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. You're tuned to Breakfasters. I I talked about this yesterday with Hayley that I went and did the... uh, Cageathon talk. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which was... It was actually heaps of fun. So um, there was a few uh, actual proper... Movie people. Movie people. Right. Um, Thomas Caldwell, um, remember he used to do the movie reviews? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because he's running the talks program. He's doing a terrific job because you got, you know, myself and Edo in just to kind of... He goes, I just didn't want it to be all... Serious. serious, yeah. Well, you can't have you can't take that. a cage of yeah. too seriously, yeah. Exactly, Ghost Rider. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, um, so Edo and I beforehand were like, oh, mate, <laughs> how's this going to go? Because was there were so many films, there's so many cage films that we haven't even seen, yeah. And it was just like, I'm like, it's all right, we are here. To, just to bring the lulls. Don't, don't people know that we're not experts? It's you know, it's not up to us. So. Um, so basically, we all had to kind of pick a film that we wanted to to focus on yeah. and have. A, and the guy running it, um, Zach, who runs the um, program in at the Asta, mm. um, he asked some really great questions. Um, like for and this is how non experts we were. Um, oh, and I'm probably gonna ruin this. Edo talked about. She said, "Oh, I'm going to talk about um, raising Alabama." And there is no film called Raising no. Alabama. It's Raising Arizona. Oh. <laughs> uh, and I chose to focus on Ghost Rider um, just because, you know, it was filmed in Melbourne and everybody knows somebody that's involved in that film or saw it or whatever. Um, so, yeah, but but it was, it, it was fun chatting to Zach beforehand because I said, what movies are you playing for the Cageathon? Because uh, they're the one, you know, he essentially was the one that was programming it, and then we had this this great discussion about movies that you put in a movie marathon. Oh yeah, because it's like there's some really great cage films, but you can't have it in a marathon. Well, what do people want from a marathon? Does it need to be silly? Does it need to be easy watching? Yeah. Funny? All of that. Ah, All of that. But you've like, got got to have one serious one, don't you? Or not? Oh, you. You can probably start off with the series. This is this is what I want to talk about. What's your perfect movie marathon? It's a bit like making an old-fashioned mixtape, isn't it? You got to pace it, you know, get the serious one at one point, then a bit of lightness. It's like a mixtape. This is why I thought you'd be really great at this. Well, I don't know. My perfect one would be Robin Williams. Oh, just all Robin Williams. All Robin Williams. So if we're doing a marathon of one one actor, well, I was actually thinking about this because there's such there's such a great breadth to draw from. You yes. couldn't have all flubbers. You know, no one no. wants to see flubber. But you've got Jumanji. Mm-hmm. Okay. What about Aladdin? Classic, yes. You have yes. a cartoon, you throw that in there. Hook. Yep, yep. great. Oh. Are you yeah. too are you too child focused at the moment? Yeah, so too child focused. Too family focused. So I think that you need to this is where I think you need to come in with something serious. So uh, What's maybe that in Gilbert Grape? No Robin Williams isn't in that. Insomnia. Yes, Insomnia, where he plays Good the. Film. What's the one that I'm thinking of? These. Uh, I'm not serious sh- one. Sure, oh, no. but there is. <laughs> Sorry, no, that's all right. <laughs> but also, so, well, the one where he side the photo guy, the photo guy who collects, you know, the creepy photo oh, guy. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah what? Uh, I don't actually know what oh. it's called. Is it called the photo awesome. guy? Oh, so 20... it's not Insomnia, is it? No, 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 no. Side the photo guys, oh. where he's, you know, he's. Yeah. One hour photo. Oh, there you go. Yes. Yeah, one hour photo is so. So I reckon one hour photo because you want to get a bit creepy and. Juxtapose them so you have Aladdin 
and then you go into one-hour photo. Oh, people yes. did not see that yeah. coming. You go from genie to creepy <laughs> photo guy. So you pick. So what do you? Let's go three. I reckon three films. Three to four films is enough for it's a three marathon. to four. Yeah. Really? Yeah, you've got to cut it down. How no, long are you expecting? People just to overnight. Be in there? You just yeah. Well, okay. Three well, or four films. Oh, that's like eight hours. Mind you, you can watch the, all the Harry Potter films. Go for you. They have movie marathons of all the Harry Potter films, and they go for twenty four hours. Okay. So you can well put in what you want. Why don't I do this? Why don't I do Aladdin? Mm-hmm. Do I do, do a Good Morning Vietnam? No. Let's do Aladdin. Yep. Jumanji. Yep. Side the photo go twenty four hour photo. Yep. And. I don't what do you want to finish waste on? the last one. What do you finish on? It needs to be uplifting. Maybe Birdcage. Brilliant. Something uplifting where you can all be at the end and going hands up yeah. in the air. I don't think they're his best films, but I... No, 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 but that's... They... It's See, a bit of everything. You're good at it. Oh, well done. Thanks. Well done. I went... To, I like... What do you, what, tell me about yours. Oh, man, so many. Uh, I Did you ever go to movie marathons when you're in... Like, they were the, no. in the... Oh, man. No. Oh, so in Albury, it was the thing to do in the was school it? holidays. How, so yeah. how many counts as a marathon when they were doing it? Four, three to four. Three to four. Okay. Yeah, I think they'd started off doing four, and then I remember later on it was like, comes to rip off, there's only three films. But the first one I went to, um, it had, I remember it was just a stellar, there was always some, kind of one kind of naff film in there that you yeah. go, oh, what are you playing this for? Yep. Um, but there was one year where I, it was like Priscilla, Muriel's Wedding, oh. some other... You know what's good about that? It, sometimes film. watching certain films gives you a desire to watch another film. I reckon you watch Muriel's Wedding and you think, you know what, I'd want to watch Strictly Boring or I want to watch... Yes. So you kind of, that's what you're tapping into. Yeah, it's not, yeah. So it's not quite the same as the marathon theme around the act. That's more marathons themed around, like, moods. I, that was marathon themed around what's been released right now. <laughs> okay. People are getting in on the Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting a Dead Poets. I, I think I overwatched Dead Poets when I was – I think we had to watch it in high school. So yeah, I, and right. it's, I, got, I got a bit put off Dead Poets. Not too much. Yeah. Too many wow. Dead Poets. Yeah, too many Dead Poets. Goodwill Hunting, yeah. It's a, yeah. yeah. I like a theme uh, where you, it's very subtle. Oh, like you might not know. That this so it's is not. Theme, it's not an yeah. actor. It's, it's something. It's that's... something just that links all the films together. Oh, I like that. So, um, this for like, let's start off with Cool Runnings. Right? Okay, I love Cool Runnings. Yeah, where so are we going to go from there? Cool Runnings. You go to a film starring LL Cool J. <gasps> Which one? Go to um, Deep Blue Sea, one of the greatest shark films. Oh of my all god, time. I love this. You're so good. Yeah. Obviously, this taking aside Jaws, but Deep Blue Sea is a brilliant film. Uh, and then from there, go to the Blues Brothers. Oh. oh. I like it. Yeah, they're not all linked, but they're, they're it's kind just a chain, of linked, but they're chain kind reaction. Of? Yeah. yeah right. from, People would not have expected to see that coming. Bit yeah. of genre shifting. Yeah. Oh, I dig it. Yeah. What, do you, what have you got, Jeff? I don't know. Like, I'd like to say we watched... Um, Casablanca again the other day. Yep. It's such a good movie. Yeah, it is. is it? I've never seen it. You've got to watch it. It's yeah, really good. It's like, worth it. It's one of those old films that it's worth. You think it's like a lot of those old films are really slow and boring. Yeah. But it's just really cool oh. and and classy and actually kind of works. Although there are a few things in it that are not, not that great. Some of the sexual politics in it are... Oh, it's, not, yeah, it's not 1942. It's, there's yeah. a certain rapey kind of subplot yeah. that it's probably best. You only need to go back five years to still get. <laughs> yeah, so, that's know. true. So it's I, doing quite well. Anyway, it, it, um, I got kind of fascinated with Humphrey Bogart because I've never really seen any of his films. He's just one of those names that you kind of know. Mm. Yeah. And in that film, you look at him and you think you are not an attractive man. He's not yeah. at all, is he? But he's got a great hat. And did you know that in someone's just bought that hat for a lot of money? I read in the oh, paper really? today. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because you look at him in the thing, you just you just look like just some guy you'd run into. Yeah, in, but he's got charisma. And then it made me think, like, and I don't really even know his other films, but I would kind of be keen to see, like, I don't know, does he does he always have that kind of swagger mm. that he has in that film? And then, or if I had to theme one, I'd think I'd do probably a Clint Eastwood one. Oh, because then you could go all sorts of things. You could go directing from directing or directing the yeah. one with the monkey. 
Oh, what's the one with the monkey? Oh, yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> you the, know the, what I mean. The comedy that he did in, like, the 80s. Did he do a comedy in the yeah, 80s? Yeah, with, yeah, the, with monkey. the monkey. I didn't know yeah, this. Yeah, it turns up late night on oh, TV. Gosh. Every Which Way But Loose is... is yes, that, is yes. That yeah. yeah. I think it's a trucker film. I not know this film. Isn't it a trucker film? Yeah, it might be. That might be why. Yes, okay. There is fond memories of it. There is a photo of Clint Eastwood when you Google it in a truck with an orangutan resting its head on his shoulder. I know. What's not to like about that? Oh my gosh! I can't believe this is the thing that happened. Okay, so from there you go, Clint. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Then you go to um, Firefox. Uh-huh. Where he's a jet, he's a, a jet pilot. How do you know all these films? I really like, really like. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Huh. Um, uh, Unforgiven, which is one of the best films of all time. Which is about what? It's, it's a cowboy it's film. A, it's, a oh. it's a western, yeah. but it's a revisionist western. He made rel- relatively late. The whole sort of thing about it is Clint Eastwood is old and over the hill, and he can't mm. do it anymore. Oh. It's really, really good. And then you'd go back to something like The Outlaw Josie Wales, which was when he was young. Oh, you're doing this very seriously. I know. Um, I would totally do this. And also, you would then have the transformation of Clint's sort of politics from back to those early movies, which were all very rapey, then to his Clint Eastwood movies, which were like kind of semi-fascist, and then to his later, more sophisticated Clint Eastwood. And then you throw the monkey in the middle to mix it all up. Perfect. That's, that, is, that was very good. Why did he get ten movies in his marathon? Well... <laughs> well, well, that, that, is, that is very well curated, though, Jeff. Oh, well, yes. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. To Breakfasters here on Triple R, as you've probably gathered, it's Miff time at the moment. There are so many films showing all over the place. One of them that's screening is called Backtrack Boys. It's showing tomorrow at Hoyt's. We're very fortunate to be joined by its director, Catherine Scott. Welcome to Breakfasters. Good to be here. This is a documentary about a youth program run from a shed on the outskirts of Armadale. How did you come across the Backtrack program? What made you decide it would be a good subject for a documentary film? Well, who doesn't like naughty boys and dogs? <laughs> um, I was at a party and, you know, that classic moment happened because I've got a great idea for a documentary. And I was like, uh-huh. Um, but we were talking about, because I've made a lot of films about prisons and um, and uh, I was about talking about getting a Border Collie dog um, for my son. He's a diabetic and we, he's going to be alerting for hypos. So I was talking about dogs and prisons and this guy goes, Steve Tataco goes, You've got to meet this guy, Bernie, you know. He's up in Armadale and they put the dogs to sleep with didgeridoos and they turn the kids' lives around and he started telling me all the amazing things they were doing. I was like, oh, my God, I've got to get there and I've got to get there next week. I didn't go there the next week, but I went there the week after. And um, as soon as I got up there, I was like, this is such an important story to tell and um, I've never looked back. And there was like two, two and a half years of filming and oh. here we are. Uh, Backtrack is run, as you say, by a man called Bernie Shakeshaft. It's an extraordinary program. So what kind of man is he? What motivated him to start the program? I guess I'm asking you, what is the backstory of the program? Well, basically, um, Bernie um, has had a long and varied history, um, which we don't actually really go into in in the film, but he's an extraordinary man. He spent uh, many years up in the Northern Territory. Um, He was a former sort of jackaroo tracker type of fellow and then he came he moved back to Armadale um after many years because you know he's got grown children now but um he started um working with youth there and all the things that would they were doing just weren't working it was like you know they're supposed to get them job ready and all these different things and nothing was working and he was almost beside himself and he sort of talked about this a little bit in the film but he just one day just got a bunch of like little pups and just stuck them with all these like wild little boys and then all of a sudden they started things magical things started happening he's going I think we can do I think we can work with this you know and then and it's really he's an incredibly intuitive man who just kind of learns as he goes he's incredibly pragmatic and um he's just uh it's taken him a while to get to this point I mean it's it's 12 years of him developing this program over a long period of time but now he's got a whole like He's bred a whole kind of bunch of dogs, you know, so his dogs don't just do one thing. His dogs don't just jump or round up cattle or, you know, um, you know, go. They're not just therapy dogs. They're like they do about six different jobs. And most like trainers would say you can't do that. And he's like, really? 
There you go. Okay. Yeah. And um, so his dogs, are like, he refers to them as, like, health workers, you know, and, they, and they're part of his, his staff and they work with the kids. And it's, 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 there's some real magical thing going on there. But he's also got these amazing ways of talking to the, to the young guys. And now there's women, uh, young girls, who are part of the program as well. And I think for me, you know, as a mother of two pretty wild little boys, I just also, there's a lot there just on that level for just to learn how to listen to your kids, how to really um, talk to them. And, you know, this is what he does. He's got this, he's like this kid whisperer kind of kelp fellow. Yeah, I noticed it. And a lot of the conversations that he would have with the boys in the film, it was always seemed to be focused on their emotions it seems like he was um you know trying to get them the children to label their emotions um with that kind of um i guess way of talking to people and and like you said before you've made lots of prison films is that essentially the big difference that you've seen in the way people deal with naughty boys essentially yeah i mean i think i think there's a lot of things going on i mean it's 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 not just even just the way he talks to me. He basically gives. Uh, he's built a whole support network around, and that's what the story's about. I mean, the story's also about all the people that volunteer. It's how that there's a lot of mentoring from one boy to another. Um, he's built in so much stuff around. It starts with how how they speak mm. to each other, and, and teaching boys and giving a, providing a safe space for young these. Some of these kids have gone through really, really difficult stuff that you and I couldn't dream of. And so part of it's about building an, a, a safe space where people can actually really express themselves. But then they've got to learn. I mean, where do, we, where do boys learn to really express themselves in our culture? It's not easy. Um, and so he does all of that but builds this incredible network around um, these young people. And even with all that, they still have their moments, as you see in the film, mm. where you think they're just about there and then they, you know, they fall off the wagon for a little bit and then it's back again. And that's, I think, the real secret to Bernie is he just hangs in for the long haul for as long as it takes. There's a scene early on in the film where you show boys meeting the dogs for the first time and someone says that the boys find the dog that's appropriate for them, that if the boy's really chilled out, he'll find a chilled out dog. If he's really hyper, he'll find... A hyper dog. What is it, do you think, about the dogs that, that help so much in the program? Is it just the thing of taking care of something else or having something dependent on you, or is it something else? Well, I mean, you know, Bernie always sort of says that it's, um, the dogs don't judge the, the young people. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, you strike up a relationship with an animal and they just are just dealing with you. They're, they're not dealing with you, the naughty child, or the person who's in trouble with the police, or the kid that got kicked out of school. They're just dealing with you. And, um, and so there's just this plain and simple connection and it's sort of it's bringing everything back to the basics, you know. And, um, yeah, and it's also I think it's about mastery. It's about, you know, learning how, to, you know, the boys went, the boy, it's like that dog Valium, you know, when the boys are sort of teaching the, the kids, to the dogs to um, calm down, they're also learning how to calm themselves down. So it's sort of that teaching what you most need to learn sort of thing. How did the boys respond to you being around as a documentary maker? Because there's some pretty intimate moments in the film. I know. I was talking to Bernie and to um, Dorsa, who's also in the film last night. They're going, we know what we do, but how in the hell did you get in there and get that yeah. stuff? And I'm like, I don't know. I just kind of, you know, I don't know how I ended up getting in there. I just, I... I I connect with the kids. Like, it's really interesting for me because I said it in the Q&A last night. I mean, I connect to this story on so many ways. Like, I was that naughty girl mm. that got kicked out of school and was told I didn't have what it takes to do the HSC and I was like, well, fuck. And, yeah. um, you know, but then I'm also the mother who's got kids and sometimes I'm just beside myself in, time, in, in terms of how to deal with them. So, like, I feel like I'm coming in. Like, I've been all the different in the, all those different spaces. Yeah. And so for me, I... I think there was a lot for me to learn in this story and I think that's probably when you make when you're a filmmaker you you have to have that um there has to be something that you're learning or discovering because when you're discovering something then chances are the audience will too mm. you know mm. uh, 
You won, what surprised you won at the Sydney Film Festival? The Audience George, Award. Yeah. And we won another one last week at, at the Canberra Stronger Than Fiction Film yeah. Festival. So we'd like to get the trifecta. Come on, Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. But tell us about, because a lot of the boys were at the screening in, in Sydney and it received, what, a five-minute standing ovation. We had a end. standing ovation last night too. How do, the, what do the, how do the boys feel about that? Well, uh, can I just say, like, it was really interesting because... Um, the, uh, you know, those moments you're slugging away for months in the edit and you just, oh, my God, and you're just at the end of your, you know, your rope, your rope really. Mm. And so you come out and then you have this premiere and it's like those moments when you sort of see the audience and they're cheering and they've got tears coming down their face and they're mm. cheering and there's like all these kids on the stage who've never, ever been in a cinema as big as that because they're from Armadale. They've just got a little yeah. cinema. And people are cheering them on and it's like I'm, I'm watching those kids see themselves through the eyes of the audience and it's an absolutely transformative moment, that one. That's, that's the, those moments change people's lives. Yeah. And, that, and so for me to be able to create a situation to bring them to Sydney and, and, you know, Bernie brought all the kids down and they made such a huge effort to get there and to have that moment, like that's sort of the stuff you go, yep, that's why I'm doing this, you know. <laughs> the film is called Backtrack Boys. It's screening tomorrow at Hoyt. You're going to be doing yeah, so Bernie and um, Bernie and some of the Backtrack folks and a couple of the boys, including Zach, um, is oh, down. Um, and so they'll be up on stage and they'll be able to answer and talk a little bit about um, their experiences in the making of the film and what they're doing now and what's happening. So, yeah. I saw on the on the website it does seem to be selling out quickly, so I suggest if you want to go jump I on this. almost sold out, so get it. Get, Get yeah. As I said, so. film is Backtrack Boys. We've been talking to the director, Catherine Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.